Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, David and musicians. Good morning, Christ Church. Happy Lord's Day. Been looking forward to today to worship together and to open up the Lord's Word. Please pray for me as I do that because it's been a long weekend. I did a wedding yesterday. And it was quite an adventurous wedding. For the first, I think I've done a, done a lot of weddings. And yesterday was different. Because for the very first time, when the groom and the bride went to exchange rings, the bride's ring got lost. It did. <laughs> it really did. It, there was so much, there was, you know, you know, there's so much what I call bedazzlement <laughs> all around the floor that we couldn't, it was camouflaging the ring, right? So it took about, it took about five minutes to find. <laughs> so that was, that was quite an adventure. So that's, that's part of my weekend, but boy, it's good to be here today and good to open up God's word. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, please open up to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, we're going to begin at verse 1 today. 2 Kings, oh, I guess everybody's looking at me. Is that because it's on the thing there? Oh, is that how it works now? Okay, all right. Well, I was going to say while you were turning your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6 that this is one of the passages I've been wanting to preach for a long time because there are those passages in the Bible that you read and you just go, man, what is this all about? <laughs> right. This is one of those passages. Well, since I don't hear any pages turning, we'll begin. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. Verse four. So he went with them and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees but as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it up. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is your revelation of yourself, your self-disclosure, and your word is life to us. It gives us instruction and it directs our path into righteousness. Now, Father, I pray that you would open up your word to us and show us wonderful things that we might live in a manner pleasing to you and bring you much glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
Well, the Bible's testimony of itself is that all of it is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, that includes all Christians, might be complete, equipped for every good work. And when the Bible says that, it means that every part of the Bible and every word of the Bible is breathed out from God and is profitable to us in all these ways. This is where we get the idea of the plenary inspiration of Scripture. Simply means that all of the Bible is the word of God, every word of it. And if we receive the Bible's testimony of itself, particularly this verse in 2 Timothy, then it's reasonable to ask the question, why is this story in our Bible? I mean, we can understand why the miracle of God parting the Red Sea so that the Hebrew people could pass through and escape the Egyptians is in our Bible, right? We recognize that God is demonstrating that he is the great savior and deliverer of his covenant people. We can understand why the miracle of the loaves is recorded in scripture. There, Jesus is simply articulating and demonstrating that he himself is the bread of life that sustains man and satisfies mankind. And we can even understand why the account of Jesus miraculously calling his friend Lazarus from death in the grave is recording and recorded in the scripture. Because there Jesus is proving that he himself is the resurrection and the life. But this story is a little bit different. How many people listened to it and thought, what does this mean? <laughs> Why is this in the Bible? What could be so important about a miracle, indeed, of a prophet making an axe head float be so important that God would include it in Scripture? Well, this is where sincere Christians throughout church history have gone in different directions with this passage. Some have seen this as a sort of messianic prophecy. Uh, the stick that's thrown in the water representing Christ and pointing to Jesus as the branch who saves. Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the branch, so some see this as a messianic prophecy. Others see this as an allegorical account where the story has a deeper spiritual meaning than is apparent. In fact, one of my favorite preachers uh, preached on this passage. And in this passage, he saw um, a sort of flow chart for how Christ saves sinners. Now, I've benefited from his ministries, but I thought, I think you're reaching on this one right here. <laughs> Still yet, others see this passage as a passage uh, packed full of moral principles that we should seek to apply to our lives. And indeed, there are some moral principles here. One person said this verse is all about 
not borrowing people's things and losing them. <laughs> right? And yet, a real popular uh, preacher thought that this passage was addressed specifically to preachers. Preachers who had become dull and boring in their preaching. So he titled his sermon, How to Get Your Sharp Edge Back Once You've Lost It. I don't think that's what this passage is about. (laughs) It is an enigmatic passage. It's difficult to interpret. But I think if we apply just some simple principles of interpretation, uh, we can arrive at a reasonable explanation to what this passage means. So let me offer you a couple. One biblical principle of interpretation that's helpful when we're dealing with a perplexing passage like this one is that the simplest interpretation of a passage is most often the right one. Not always, but, but quite often the most simple interpretation is the right one because uh, the original audience that the Bible is addressed to are not biblical scholars, right? They don't have all the, uh, the biblical scholarship that we have, the ability to uh, in translate language and, and time and culture. They don't have all those things. And so many have said that when we come to a passage like this, that we should recognize that the original audience would have not even been readers, but simply hearers. So we should keep it pretty simple and straightforward in our interpretation. I think that's a good principle here. But here's one that's even more important. It is that scripture, first and foremost, is about God. Always keep that in mind when you're studying scripture. Scripture is God's self-revelation of himself. The primary purpose of the Bible is to make God known. Its primary purpose is not the redemption of mankind, as many people have suggested. Although in Scripture we do clearly see God's plan for redeeming mankind and his covenant purposes for his covenant people, but the Bible is not primarily a man-centered book. The Bible is primarily about God. Therefore, every book of the Bible, every passage of the Bible, and in every account and story in the Bible, God is the main character. Amen? So let's keep these principles in mind, and let's take a closer look at this passage, and then I'll tell you what I think the takeaways are in this passage. So let's begin with verse 1. The account begins in verse 1 by identifying a problem. It's a welcome problem. It's a good problem, but it's a problem no less. Verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Now, these sons of the prophets were actually students or disciples, if you will, of the prophet Elisha, not to be confused with the prophet Elijah. How many people have made that mistake? I think I was saved for about four years before I realized there were two different men, right? (laughs) Their names sound alike. Elijah and Elisha, but they're different folks. Elijah was a prophet with the big platform, right? 
He was the one who was on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, with Jesus and Moses. Elisha was the guy. Elijah was a prophet that was sent to prophesy to princes and palaces. Elisha was sent to peasants in the backcountry. Elijah was spectacular in his ministry. Remember, Elijah is the one who took on the 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Elijah, not so much. He took a more simple approach to ministry, doing most of his miracles behind the scene. Elijah was a superstar among the prophets. Elisha was just a star. Watch this, Saints fans. Elijah was the Tom Brady of prophets. Elisha was just Drew Brees. I just put that in there. I thought that would get to, thought that would wake everybody up here, right? But before you start feeling bad for Elisha, right, you need to understand that, that though Elisha didn't do the spectacular miracles that Elijah did, he was indeed anointed by God. In fact, Elisha had received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And so while his miracles weren't as spectacular, he did perform even more miracles than Elijah. And therefore, he became a very popular leader in Israel, and people began to follow him. So what happened was Elisha succeeds Elijah in his prophetic ministry to Yahweh, and he takes up Elijah's work. And part of that work is to serve as sort of a, um, a headmaster or teacher of what people have called a prophetic school, right? There were six of these schools where prophets and spiritual leaders in Israel went to be trained and instructed by the prophet Elisha. And because of Elisha's influence and his effectiveness as a prophet and teacher, uh, one of these schools was experiencing just some exponential growth. Young men were coming from all over Israel in droves to be trained by Elisha. Now, those of you who've been around Christchurch for a while and have kids at Christchurch Academy know that whenever enrollment is steady over a period of years and increasing, it's not long before you need more room, right? The growth itself creates a problem. A welcome problem, but a problem no less. And I can tell by looking around this room that many of you understand what a welcome problem is. The reason I can tell that is because of all these kids you're having here. Right? Kids are welcome problems. Right? Whenever you have kids, they start to present problems. But welcome problems. Sabrina and I started having kids and we started increasing in speed and in volume. And within a period of three years, we went from having this wonderful four-door sedan. It was a nice car. Leather seats, wood grain panels, bucket seats. It's a nice car, Ford Avalon. Y'all know what that is, right? Some of y'all old enough to know what that was? 
It's a nice, pretty nice car for us. We went from that to an oversized Ford excursion in about three years. <laughs> because God had given us a good problem. And the solution to our good problem was we needed more space in our vehicle. How many people have experienced that? Yeah, a lot of you experiencing that right now, right? Look at Tim in the back. He's raising his hand. Yeah, I'm sure you have, Tim. Right? Let me give you some free game right here for you young couples who are expanding quickly. Right? Whenever the car seat takeover happens, go ahead and start looking for a new place to live. Right? Because the car seat takeover is the first indication that you're going to run out of living space. Amen? How many people know that? Pastor Scott's shaking his head. He says, I know, I know what you mean there, right? But be encouraged. It's a welcome problem that God has given you. And when God gives us welcome problems, God is going to resolve it for us, right? And that's exactly what's happened at Christ Church Academy. And that is exactly what was happening in this school that Elisha was the head of. And like any problem, welcome problems need to be addressed. And here's where things get interesting. Rather than complaining about the lack of room, the lack of facilities, these students, wonderful students, if I might say so, these students all on their own come up with a very thorough plan for producing a facility with new rooms. And they also do what every Christian or every Christian group should do. They take their plan to God, right? You see, to take your plan to the prophet of God was tantamount to taking your plans to God. So they take their plans to Elisha, and they speak to Elisha about it, right? Look at verse 2 and 3 and notice their thorough plan. They say to Elisha, let us go to the air, let's, let us leave this area and go to the lush banks of the Jordan. And once we get there, let us each cut down some trees and take a log and, and we can work together to build a larger facility so that we might accommodate ourselves with a new school. And Elisha immediately says, go for it, right? But there's more to their plan. These wise students, and we have some wise students at Christ Church Academy, don't we? These wise students understood the value of the presence of God, right? So they designate one student to go to Elisha and invite him to come along with them. And they go to Elisha and he says, man of God, be pleased to go with your servant. And Elisha quickly answers and says, all right, I'll roll with y'all, right? Now, don't miss how significant this is, right? Don't miss how Elisha responds. He immediately gives his full blessing and even agrees to go with these students, right? Why am I bringing that up? I'm bringing it up because if you're like me, it is not your instinct to believe that God wants to quickly bless you. It is not my instinct to automatically believe that God is going to uh, bless my plans or bless my desires or my wants. Oftentimes, if you're like me, you wrongly assume that if God's going to do something to bless you in your life, that you have to overcome his reluctance through prayer or some other means, 
How many people fall into that trap? If God's going to bless me, if he's going to honor my plans, then I got to live a little better. If God's going to really bless us, then I got to pray a little harder. But that's not our God, Christ Church. God wants to bless his people freely and abundantly. The Bible says in Romans 8.32, one of my favorite passages, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that is, all of his covenant people, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? See that? God wants to bless us freely and abundantly. And there's no need for us to try to twist God's arms to make, us, make him bless us. He wants to do that anyway. I think here we have to be careful that we don't respond or overreact to a lot of the prosperity teaching we hear where we feel halfway guilty about going and asking God for something. No, let's go to God boldly and make our petitions known. Let's go to God expecting that he wants to bless us. Amen? Well, as is often the case, these students' welcome problem suddenly turns into an unwelcome problem. Notice the plot shift in verse 4 and 5. Okay, the building crew gets to the Jordan River and everyone is doing their part. The, uh, the work is coming along splendidly. Then suddenly there's an unexpected mishap. Verse 5, as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water and he cried out, Alas, master, it was borrowed. Now, this lost axe head creates an unwelcome problem. With the axe sinking to the depths of the Jordan River, and because there wasn't a tool shed on the site for them to go grab another one from, the building project immediately was going to experience a slowdown. And to make matters worse, this axe didn't belong to this young man. He had borrowed it. Now, to us, that might seem like a minor problem, right? No big deal. You borrow someone's axe head, you're swinging it, you're using it, and it falls into the water, what would you do? You jump in your truck or your car and you drive over to Lowe's and get another one, right? For about $35. Well, there were no Lowe's in that day, or harbor freight. That's what happened with, with my boys is, I think my boys, I'm going to pick on them a little bit. So we do a lot of raking, right? And so they snap rakes, right? Not on purpose, but rakes get snapped, right? But what happens when a rake snaps, right? You just go to harbor freight and get another one, right? And the work continues. Well, again, there was no harbor freight in this case, and no lows or none of that stuff. And besides that, this guy is a young Bible college seminary student, if you will. How many people think that he has the money for uh, to replace an axe? Uh, I think that's a hard no, right? So this is a small problem to us, but this is a big problem to this young man, right? So notice how the prophet responds to him. Verse 6 and 7. Verse six, then the man of God said, where did it fall? Right now, the man of God brings with him the presence, the calming presence of God. So there's immediately a hope that everything's going to be all right. And then it says, 
And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. And the young man probably looked with amazement and said, look at God. Look at God. Because when a true man of God performs a miracle, it doesn't direct our attention or our gaze to his own power, but it directs us to God, right? When a real prophet of God does a miracle, we think, how awesome is God? And I'm sure this was the response of this young man. And verse 7 says, Elisha said, take it up. So the young man reached out his hand and he took it up. What a great story. Great story. Still not sure what it means, but it's a wonderful story, isn't it? Well, let's, let's try to figure out what we should take away from it. Here are the two things that I think we, we need to take away from this passage. The first is God's providential care for his people. God's providence is the way that he works out all things together for the good of his people. This story displays how God works in providence by going ahead of us in order to take care of a problem even before we're aware that there'll be a problem, right? Think about it. Would that axe head have been recovered if Elisha wasn't there? No, not at all. There were no dive crews or scuba gear back in that day, right? It was just loss. But here's another question. How did Elisha get to that construction site? God put it in someone's heart, right, to ask him to come along. And God put it in Elisha's heart to immediately respond by saying yes. That's God providentially working ahead of time in order to care for his people. And I'm wondering how many of us can look back in our lives today and see God acting in providence, but ahead ahead of time to protect us, to care for us. I know I can. I look back on my life and I can think of at least two instances where God was acting in providence ahead of time to divert my path from sure serious injury or even death. God does that all the time. How many people here can testify that God worked in providence to prevent you from being joined with the wrong person, going into a business relationship with the wrong person, or even marrying the wrong person? Yeah. God often works in time to to change our affections for things, right? That's his providential work. How many of you can see that in your life there's been a job or a career move that that may have looked intriguing, that that perhaps you may have thought uh, this is the one. And yet God acted in providence and he did something and he closed the door to that job. And you can look back years later and say, you know what? That was God caring for me by closing the door. How many people can say that? That's, That's happened in my life, right? So I think this is one of the things we can take away from this is that God acts in providence ahead of time to care for us. And I think the scripture is calling us to be on the lookout for that in our lives. Pay attention to what's happening in your life, how God is working in your life. You know, God doesn't, God speaks to us primarily through his word. 
but he also speaks to us in the way he directs our lives. That's God's providential care for us. Here's the second big takeaway from the story, and I, th- I, believe, I believe this is the main reason why this story is in the Bible. Listen to it. God wants us to know that he cares about the small matters in our life. Yeah, I think that's why this is in the Bible. He wants us to know that even the little things in our lives is a concern for him. We can be so prone, prone to the wrong-headed kind of thinking that says God is busy with big things, right? He doesn't have time for the things that even I would consider small things in my life, right? God is busy holding the universe together by the word of his power, right? He doesn't have time for my little petty concerns about being a good mother, right? God's holding the world together. God's, God's probably concerned about the diplomatic relations between the superpowers of the world, but surely God's not concerned about the fact that as a husband, I feel like I'm, I'm failing my family and that I'm not getting things right and not getting things organized in my household the way they should be. This passage here, I believe, is in the Bible to, to counter all that kind of thinking and to say, no, no, God is very concerned about the small things in our life. Understand that, Christ Church? He is concerned about the things that matter to us. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us to pray about everything. Tells us that in the book of Philippians chapter 4. This is why Jesus can say, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Why? Because all of our concerns matter to God. Now, do all your concerns matter to me? I'm a pastor, so I'm supposed to say, yeah, right? But they don't, right? Not always. You catch me on the right day, and I would have to confess to you that your little concerns don't matter to me at all, right? Don't look at me like that. You all, if you're being honest, could say the same thing, right? Someone's come to you with a matter, and you say, you know, you try to look interested, (laughs) but you're not. That's just the truth. And what we do is we project that on God. But God's not that way, especially when it comes to his covenant people. He cares about all the minor details. He cares about the sunken axe heads in our lives. Christ Church, no one may care that you desire to be married. Nobody may really care about that. But God cares about it, right? We're building a little building over there on Willow Street. I'm, not, I'm pretty sure it's not big news in Lafayette. I think the people who care about it are probably limited to this room and maybe a few other people, right? But God cares about that, right? And we should pray about it. And we should expect that because God cares about the little small things in life, that he will act on our behalf. And God is so, so committed to us understanding that and believing that, that he would put a story like this in the Bible. Simple story, but 
profound truths in it. That's what I think this is about. I've been reading this since I was a young Christian, and just this year I realized this doesn't have this deep meaning that I've always been looking for. What's profound about it is that it's God as father saying to me, Kirk, I care about the little things in your life. Does that make sense, Christ Church? So let us take this word and let us believe it and apply it to our lives and see God work in our lives. Amen. Well, let's pray to God and man, you can come up and join me. Father, thank you for. Uh, this story being included in the Bible that we can go a lot of places with, but oh, this straightforward truth that you go ahead of us and work in providence for our good to care for us and that you care about the little details in our lives, the small matters of our life. Father, we thank you that you've included this in the Bible and we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to believe it and to embrace it in faith, that we might see you work in our lives and in our church in all the wonderful ways you desire to, for our good and for your great glory. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.